About 20 years ago, we moved uh, to a house in Jessamine County, and we live on, a, on an acre lot with quite a few mature trees, and our house is sided with, with western cedar siding. It's really nothing special. In fact, we thought it was about the ugliest house in the neighborhood, but it had potential. When we moved in, we expected to be the only residents on the property, but that's not at all even close to the case. We live in a community of other creatures who seem to all be intent on a hostile takeover. And it's a constant battle to see who will overcome. Let me just list a few of these enemies for you that we've battled over the years. Woodpeckers. They peck the knots out of the siding, and then they set up shop in the attic. To overcome, I have to get in the attic and somehow block the holes they've created to attempt to take over. One day I pulled the cover off the entrance to our crawl space and it looked like the ground was moving. Some sort of subterranean bumblebee had decided to take up residence in that space. So I called the pest guys. They came out. It was hilarious. They put on like a bee suit that looks like they were dealing with toxic waste in our, in our crawl space. So we um, paid them to overcome. Then we had earwigs, prehistoric little nasties. They show up outside with the intent of living inside, so we called the pest guys, whom I'm beginning to know pretty well by now, and uh, paid them to overcome. They seem to have a lot of little friends called ladybugs and stink bugs, and so we've had to deal with them. Then one time we had this, I should have brought one in, we've got one in a jar that Mary caught the other day because there was one inside the house. It was a cicada-killing wasp. They're like this big. They, they show up on radar. They, are, they don't show up every year, but frequently, and they're very intimidating. They, eventually, um, they say they don't sting, but I'm not convinced because they, they look like they could take you out. They live in the ground. They're kind of amazing little creatures. They live in the ground. They catch these cicadas, and I've seen them carrying them into their little hole in the ground, and... Um, they drag the cicada into their nest. They lay eggs in the rotting carcass, and the lava, larvae feed on that rottenness. So you overcome these creatures by pouring ammonia on their nest at night when they're snoozing. So one afternoon, I marked all the nests with flags. There were about 30 of them. And then around 11 p.m., I donned my headlamp and went on a killing spree. <laughs> I sometimes wonder what the neighbors think. You know, you got guys with bee suits and dudes with headlamps at midnight, uh, the cicada wasp did disappear that year, but I was left with about 30 patches of dead grass. <laughs> then we had grubs. These little uglies feast voraciously, you know, on the roots of your grass. Fortunately, there's no grass in the house, so they don't really want to come in. And we overcame those with some poison. Then we had yellow jackets. They took up residence behind our siding, which is not cool. You know, unlike the cicada-killing wasp, they do sting with regularity. So we called the pest guys. And they came out and put on their bee suit again, which just, just cracks me up. They disassembled some of our house, and $250 later, the yellow jackets were overcome. We had to deal with termites because we live in a house made of wood in the forest. Um, we called the pest guy again and wrote a hefty check for a treatment. The termites have been overcome. I saved the best for last, a skunk. The last time I was in the Philippines, which is approximately halfway around the world <laughs> from our house, um, a skunk decided to check out our home. Um, 
maybe even finding a way to get in the crawl space. We're not sure. But that kind of thing tends to happen when I'm out of town and Mary's there by herself. And she was not amused by the skunk. So she calls Ron, and Ron comes over to help rescue her from the skunk smell. And I don't think the skunk was overcome, but he did move along. So we'll go with that. But you know what? I get out of this list, there will always be something else, something next to overcome. And it's not going to stop. It's just, and this is just pestilence, you know? There's so many other forces at work trying to overtake us, overtake our minds, overtake our emotions, overtake our heart, our body. Uh, I, I think it's never a bad time to hear a word from God as the battle rages. And during this battle, he says clearly to you and to me, you are an overcomer. And that's what I hope you hear this message this morning. I hope you hear God say to you, in the end, you will overcome. In the past, I've had this unfortunate thought go through my mind. I've wondered if becoming a Christian doesn't make people's lives worse than it was before, more difficult, more challenging. And you think about it. Before you become a follower of Jesus, you had a lot fewer things to, be feel, to feel guilty about. Some of us who are a bit older remember hearing a fair number of sermons about how we need to pray more, give more, read more, serve more, teach more, baptize more. In other words, to be a good Christian whom God is pleased with meant to do a lot more than what you're doing today. I had a friend at the church in Vero Beach where I worked for a while who based the effectiveness of my sermons on the level of guilt he felt. Not much guilt, not much of a sermon. Great amount of guilt, great sermon. A steady diet of this do-more message may lead us to a conclusion which could be pretty unhealthy. We conclude we may always come up short. We conclude we may never get it all right. We conclude we may never do enough. We conclude we may never cut out all the bad stuff or even enough of the bad stuff. And the bottom line conclusion is, I'm a sinner. I always have been. I always will be. And here's the dilemma with that conclusion. It sounds humble. It sounds contrite, it, it sounds honest, but the problem is, I don't know of hardly any times that Jesus tells me to, to identify myself as a sinner. The message from God's word to those who believe in him is quite the opposite. A profound change occurs in our fundamental identity when we become a follower of Jesus Christ. The first Christians were convinced that in identifying with Jesus' death on the cross, something inside of us dies. One of my favorite sentences which Paul wrote is in Colossians 3, verse 3. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. This old nature of mine, this one which is always pulling me down, the one leading me to live in ways I wasn't created to live, that nature died. Paul doesn't say that nature stepped out for a time or is in a coma or hung out around the corner. The intentionally chosen word is died. You died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. We have this new life, this new identity which God gives us. A couple of sentences later, Paul writes, You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Something so transformational was going on in the life of these believers that they could refer to their old life as the life we once lived. I wonder, can, can you say that? Can you say, I once lived this way, but that's not me anymore. Now I live another way. 
Being hidden with Christ does not mean no struggles and no failures and no sinful choices will ever happen again. It means this new way of life, this new identity leads me to continually believe I died to the old ways of life. Here's how Paul states this this vital identity principle in a different place in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. I'm not who I was. I'm a new creation. I'm in Christ. I'm hidden in him. Listen to these words. Paul, Paul really pours it on a little bit later in, in Colossians 3, verse 12. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. I, I just take a look at that verse. You know, does any word stand out for you there that he calls you? How about the word holy? Notice he, he didn't say you're going to be holy someday. He didn't write, it would be nice if you were holy, but instead you're a mess. He simply wrote, you're chosen, you're holy, and you're deeply loved, pure, unstained. And that's who believers are today. That's who you are today if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And you definitely can't be identified as a sinner and as holy at the same time. Those are incompatible identities. So here's the point. Instead of beating yourself up over the things you're not doing, the person you're not being, the things you do poorly, instead of living in the past, learn about and live like the person who God says you are today, who you already are, chosen, deeply loved, and holy. One author writes this line, there is a person who, already, who we are already in God's eyes, and we are learning to live like it's true. Our identity in Christ is such an important concept to, uh, and truth to understand. I mean, this lays a foundation to allow what God says about us shape what we believe about ourselves. I'm not who I was. You're not who you were. Something new has happened inside of every one of us who are followers of Jesus. And sin, sin is serious, and hearing who God says I am is likewise serious. So that's that's sort of a view from the clouds regarding our identity in Christ. Uh, what I want to do uh, now is to turn the lens a bit as we sharpen the focus on a very specific new creation name God gives us. In Romans 8, I want to look at four questions that Paul asks and then spotlight his conclusion as we think about our identity. In Romans 8, 28, it's a verse that uh, Barrett's referred to a couple of weeks in his sovereignty class. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Those are, those are familiar words. And so reading familiar words is always risky, uh, you know, to address uh, because they're, they're We've just heard them a lot. This is a, a passage that we're familiar with. So, so hang, me, hang with me through this a little bit, uh, and maybe you'll see something or be moved by something that, that's a little unfamiliar. Verse 31 is the first question that Paul asks. What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? For those who tend toward pessimism, your eyes will lock onto the second phrase of this question, 
who can be against us? And you can think of all kinds of people who are against you, forces against you, and diseases against you. You may be wired like this particular uh, grumpy elder who missed one of their regular meetings with the minister. And when the preacher saw him a few days later, he said, hey, I missed you at our meeting last week. And the grumpy elder said, yeah, I missed being there. I was looking forward to voting no. You know people like that, don't you? They get their satisfaction out of bringing you into their misery, of which they have plenty. But look at the question again, and let your eyes focus on the first part, if God is for us. You see, your parents may have forgotten you. Your friends may have abandoned you. Your husband or wife may have walked out on you. Your company may have terminated you. But God is what? He's for you. The maker of the universe hears your prayers and is cheering you on. It's important to see what Paul doesn't write. He doesn't write that God might be for you or has been for you or once was for you or hopefully is for you. He doesn't write that God is for you when you really have your act together or he'll be for you when you do get your act together. What does he write? God is for you. He's for you right here and he's for you right now. On our refrigerator are several pictures, probably like your refrigerator. We have some wedding invitations up there now, some baby showers, some art from grandchildren. And I I love this line that I read a long time ago. If God has a refrigerator, your picture is on it. Isn't that a good thought? Isaiah says it the same thing. He says the same thing with a little different metaphor. He says in Isaiah 49, 6, I have engraved you on the palm of my hand. I don't know if that's a tattoo or a brand or what it is, but our name is written on God's hands. Paul clearly writes these words. If God is for you, his foundational premise is that God is for you. That's the presumed answer to Paul's question. So knowing God is for you, now you can finish the question, who can be against us? Without knowing whose side God is on, if that's still to be decided, I can think of a bunch of people and, uh, <clears throat> and forces that, and powers that could be against me. But not if God is on my side. Not if we're wearing the same team jersey. If God is for you, who can take away your purpose? If God is for you, who can steal your joy? When it feels like the world is against you, remember the entire question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Here's the second question from Paul in verse eight and chapter 8, verse 32. He who died <clears throat> did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? I read a good illustration for this question. Uh, suppose a kid is being beaten up in an alley by some thugs. And a man sees what's going on, and he rescues the boy. And he takes him to the hospital, takes care of him, pays all of the bills, learns the boy is an orphan. He adopts him and gives him in his own name and, and takes him in. He just takes him in. And then one night, several months later, the boy is sobbing in bed, and the dad comes in. He says, I'm worried, Dad. I'm worried about what I'm going to eat tomorrow and where I'm going to stay and how I'm going to stay warm and dry and safe. And sometimes we miss the obvious. See, look at that verse again. Don't you think if God gave us his son, he'll meet our needs too? But we still worry. We worry about all kinds of things. And it's justified. 
in our minds. And if we talk to each other, it makes sense because we worry about stuff. We worry about war. We worry about our job. We worry about deadlines at work. We worry about our weight. We worry about meeting the right person. We worry about passing a test next week or paying the mortgage this week. Did God send Jesus to save us so we could worry as much as we do? Would Jesus be nailed to a cross for our sins and then just toss aside our prayers? There's a great promise tucked away in Deuteronomy. It's 33, chapter 33, verse 25. And the sentence says this, your strength will equal your days. Now think about that statement. Your strength will equal your days. It's a line Moses says as he shares his last message before he dies. Your strength will equal your days. Here's what this means. God will give you all that you need each day. He'll give you the faith. He'll give you the insight. He'll give you the patience, the wisdom, whatever you need to face today. But what we do is we worry about next Thursday. We worry about the end of the month. We worry about retirement. We try to handle tomorrow's troubles and concerns with today's faith. And what seems to be the promise throughout the Bible is that God will be faithful to give us what we need today. And what we experience today will prepare us for what we will need when? Tomorrow. And I want you to remember that. Your strength will equal your days. God will graciously give us what we need. The third question in verse 33 and 34. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Jesus Christ, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Have you ever been held hostage by somebody who knows something about you? Somebody has the scoop on you? When I was about nine, I was riding in the back seat down a country road to our home, and my brother was driving. He's about eight years older than me, and he was in our Chevy Nova. A couple of friends were with him. It was a little rainy. The roads are a little, you know, up and down a little bit. And he was driving too fast, and we hydroplaned off the road between two telephone poles and into a cornfield. Wiped out about 30 yards of corn. And I was laying, because nobody wore seatbelts back then, you know. I was laying in the, in the floorboard when it came to a stop, and he looked back. He says, are you okay? And I'm like, I didn't say anything. I want you to shake my head. He goes, don't tell mom. Well, I was too scared to talk for a while, but I thought whenever I do start talking and after I change my underwear, I'm going to have a great time with this. <laughs> Serious blackmail material. Whenever I have a chore to do, empty the dishwasher, shovel snow, take out the trash, I can go to my brother and say, remember the cornfield. And whenever he's about to do something rude to me that babies in the family are continually subjected to, and you babies in the family know what I'm talking about, Remember the cornfield. And that was, this, this was going to change my life. It was going to change my future. But you know, my, my plans never panned out because we got home and the car, <laughs> the car was covered with mud. Um, and there were stalks of corn hanging out under the grill like a mustache. <laughs> and, you know, I, I was only nine, but I guess my mom might see something and kind of notice if, even if I didn't tell her. But the truth is we're all guilty, and Satan knows it. And he does his best to accuse us of our lying and our arrogance and our immorality. And at every opportunity, 
at open door, the accuser writes down things against us, against you. You break a promise, and he writes it down. You let a word slip out, he writes it down. You think of getting even, he writes it down. Satan is all about reminding us of our past sins and our inadequacies, and he does it at just the right moment when it's going to do the most damage inside of us. Paul writes in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. And that's true, isn't it? We, we all deserve to die. But, he continues, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Any charge brought against us is defeated by Jesus' act of love on the cross for our sake. Jesus is on our side. He's interceding for us, clearing a path to the Father for us. We cannot be condemned with Jesus on our side. The last question Paul asks is in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I mean, there, there it is. That, that's the big question. We all want to know the answer because we ask that question out of desperation or shame or guilt. I want to know, how long will God's love last? Don't you want to know that? Will he really love me forever? Even when I blow it, even when I'm a jerk, even when I intentionally ignore him. How does, how does God's love hold up when I'm short-tempered and when I'm cocky, when I'm rude or selfish? Have I drifted so far that his love is out of my reach? Sometimes I want to know that. Sometimes that's all I want to know. I may mask it with a different question, but what I really want to know is this. Does God still love me? And God answered our question before we even asked it. Stepping down out of heaven, he wrapped himself in flesh. And the beginning of his life on this planet is a pretty good proof of his love. But the end of his life is an unmistakable message to us. You and I are very special. We are deeply loved. And he gave up his life on a cross, and that was his choice. And he died a death that you and I deserved. And he gives us life through his resurrection that we didn't earn in any way. So here's Paul's answer to the question we all eventually ask. Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? And check out Paul's familiar conclusion one more time. In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He starts out that little paragraph, in all things, we are more than conquerors. We're winners. We're victors. In some translations, it says we are an overcomer. Paul has a, strong, a stronger message, though, than even being an overcomer. He calls us a super overcomer, more than conquerors, predominantly victorious. 
The word means to, to vanquish beyond recognition, to overcome exceedingly. We're not simply eking out a, a squeaking out a, a victory in the waning moments. We win exceedingly. We overcome victoriously. It's not even close. The outcome is a landslide. I mean, it's a, it's a mercy rule. It's like the Oklahoma Sooner softball team this year. They were just crowned national champions. Their record was 59-3, and but get this, they won 40 of the 59 games by the mercy rule. That's definitely a display of being super overcomers, and that's the label God puts on you. You are an overcomer. You are an abundant overcomer. You are a super over conqueror, overcomer. And again, don't miss, this is, this is a present tense description. We don't read, someday you'll be an overcomer. We don't read, after you get some experience, you'll be an overcomer. We aren't destined to squeak by, eek by, barely get by. We are commissioned by God to demolish the enemy beyond recognition. And how do we do this? I don't believe there's an easy formula. No three steps that all begin with the letter O. And I'd be suspicious if somebody gave me one. But it's got to start with a choice to take God at his word. It has to start there. Believe what he says. And he says, you are an exceeding, abundant, predominant overcomer. We've got to make a choice to believe the truth of God instead of embracing the message coming from all the other voices. Each day you wake up and choose to live out a decision, a decision God made to identify you as an overcomer. Am I going to live like an overcomer today in the promise of my creator? When the tough stuff hits us, we remember the name God has given us. Am I going to believe God when he says, I'm an overcomer, or will I listen to the other voices and be a victim? So we're going to sing a song in just a moment that really talks about what we're, what we're focusing on. And I hope you'll think about this decision that God has made to identify you as an overcomer. You're an overcomer because God is for you. You're an overcomer because God graciously gives you all things. You're an overcomer because Jesus Christ died and was raised and is now interceding for you. You're an overcomer because nothing will ever separate you from his love. The invitation is pretty obvious this morning. We are invited to live like this is true every single day. To make this very practical this week, identify a piece of your life where you question God's love for you, where you doubt his presence, where you're unconvinced of his power to make a difference. And this week, walk into that moment of your life carrying with you this new name that you've been given, Overcomer. Choose to believe it's true. Choose to believe it's real. Choose to believe it's you. And see what God does. Let's stand together and sing.